Well, good morning. That's pretty good. Brad warned me about you guys. Uh, good morning. That's much better. It's good to see you all this morning. And uh, thank you so much for the welcome uh, this morning, but also in the past few days. Thank you for those of you that helped us unpack the U-Haul. That, that was a process, and it was later at night than we thought. Thank you for those of you that have had us over for meals, and uh, thank you for the conversations that we've had, and those that have offered advice and suggestions, and, and just help in general for uh, getting oriented with the area. Um, and uh, we really look forward to our time here and uh, walking out this faith journey alongside all of you. So um, we're really excited to be here and can't wait to get to know you each individually and personally and um, just uh, join in what God is already doing here at Grace Point Church. So thanks. As we begin this morning, I want to ask a a question. Um, the question is, have you ever wanted something so much that you would do anything to get it? I'm talking about wanting it so much that you would even put aside your convictions, that you would even do something that you considered wrong in order to get it. Have you ever asked the question, is it worth it? And before even giving yourself time to think, you answer, yeah, it's worth it. We're doing this. I don't care what the cost. I don't care what, I have to, what convictions I have to lay aside. Yes, it's worth it. Uh, one time when I was little, I was playing with uh, one of my friends up the street. And we were playing with some of his toys, and he got out this action figure. As soon as I saw that thing, I knew that I wanted it. I mean, the detail was intricate. The, the action figure was just perfect. I could begin imagining exactly how I would use this toy in, in a starring role in all of my imaginary games. A starring role in all of my imaginary games without my friend Robert in the way. Just me and that toy. And pretty soon, my daydream became a reality. And I found myself at home with the toy in my room. Robert's still at his house. And I was having a great time until my mom came in. She was on the phone with Robert's mom. And uh, she asked me a question. She, she said, do you know anything about this little action figure? Robert's missing it. His mom's on the phone wondering. I mean, I was kind of caught red-handed. I had the toy literally in my hands. So I started crying, I gave the toy back, and I sat in time out to think about what I had done. But then life went on. But as I reflect on that moment, I'm shocked at how quickly and easily it was for me to lay aside my convictions. I knew it was wrong to steal but because I wanted something so much, because I wanted that toy so much, the answer to the question, is it worth it, was yes for me. And so many times we answer the question, is it worth it, with the yes, with the affirmative, when that's not really the truth. Because as soon as I put that toy 
over my relationship with Robert. The condition of my heart, what I really cared about, was instantly revealed. And there was something wrong. And was it worth it? No, it didn't end up actually being worth it in the end. But this morning, we're going to talk about something that actually is worth it. And I want you to think, I want you to think as we're, as we're having this conversation, what are some of the things in your life that you would say, yes, that's worth it. It's, it's worth it um, for me to value these higher than anything else. Think about it. Maybe it's your, your house. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's uh, your children, your job. Maybe it's even your physical appearance or how people um, perceive you and it, whether or not they think you're really smart. Why do we value certain things over others? Is it because they give us a sense of worth? Is it because they give us a self, sense of self-sufficiency? Is it simply because they make us feel alive? Today we're going to talk about something that surpasses all of those things. And it's the fulfillment of our deepest desire and need. It is of unparalleled worth because it fulfills a desperate need that we all have in our hearts. As we come to our text today, we have to ask ourselves a very simple question. Is it worth it? Is knowing Jesus Christ really worth it? In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, Paul gives us three reasons why knowing Christ is worth it we'll see that it's worth knowing Christ because of one, His surpassing value. Two, His surpassing righteousness. And three, His surpassing life. Please follow along as uh, I read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. In this passage, uh, in this deeply emotional passage, Paul is bearing his soul to the church of Philippi. To the Philippians, he is trying to course correct them. He's trying to draw them away from reliance on the law, the Jewish system, and bring them, pull them towards a reliance on their Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He wants to make sure that they're empowered to live with the sure and certain hope, even in the face of great suffering, that they will, that they will see redemption, that they will be saved, that they will one day stand before Jesus Christ. For Paul, Christ is the difference. Christ is worth it. Because of his surpassing value, his surpassing righteousness, and his surpassing life. Look back at verses 7 through 8. Here we see that, number one, it's worth knowing Christ because of his surpassing value. It's astounding that in verse 7, Paul describes all of his previous gains as loss. As a Pharisee named Saul, he specialized in religion and had all the accolades and credentials to prove his worth. There were probably not many people in his day who could have compared with him and his religious dedication. His life had been committed from a very early age to memorizing the scriptures, to being able to recite um, scriptures right off the top of his mind, to rigorous study, memorization. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, Paul gives us the laundry list of these impressive credentials. He says, If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Faultless. His reputation, his knowledge, and his faultless adherence to the law would have been extraordinarily valuable to him. They would have been worth it to him. Yet in our text, he states that all of this really is the opposite of gain. It's as if the stock market graph has suddenly been inverted. What was gain has now become loss. Everything's been flipped on its head. I wonder what's registering in your mind as gain. What are the things that you hold up? And what would you consider loss? Could this text be suggesting that sometimes we get the truth inverted? That sometimes we focus tons of time and energy on things that ultimately amount to loss. Within the same verses, Paul is not only devaluing his personal religious credentials, he's calling out the false teachers of the time who were preaching the surpassing value of the law rather than the surpassing value of Christ. These false teachers were concerned with the outward signs of holiness, like circumcision and various food restrictions. They were insisting on strict adherence to the Jewish law, even for Gentiles that didn't come from that background. They were insisting on strict adherence uh, for, for the Gentiles in order to become a Christian. They said, hey, you've got to do all these Jewish customs and traditions and rituals. You've got to follow our law to the T in order to be considered a Christian. 
Paul makes it clear in verse 7 of our text that these false teachers had their gains and their losses inverted, just like he used to. Do you ever do this? Do we look at people's appearance and behavior before we get to know their hearts? Are we tempted by false teachers of our day to believe we have to look a certain way or behave a certain way to be accepted into the church? Have you ever been in a church setting where you felt enormous pressure to convert to maybe the external standards or those unspoken norms? Where it felt like the holy huddle religious club mentality put more emphasis on physical appearance and facades and masks than on the surpassing value of knowing Christ. We have our gains and losses inverted when we believe religious standards are worth more than the surpassing value of knowing Christ. But then Paul takes it a step further in verse 8. All things, all things are a loss. Now we're not just talking about those things we strive for that make us feel better about ourselves or prove our worth to people we don't even know or like. You know it's true. Think about how much time and money you spend trying to impress people that you don't even like. But Paul is way beyond that here. We're talking about all things. This includes things good and bad. Do you value your family? Loss. Do you value your spouse? Loss. Do you value your job? Loss. Do you value your home? Loss. When compared to knowing Christ Jesus intimately and personally, Paul says everything, underscore everything, is loss. And then, if to add an exclamation point, he uses the word rubbish or garbage at the end of verse 8. When Paul uses the word garbage, he's liking, likening everything when compared to knowing Christ Jesus to dung. Yes, I said it, dung or poop. I can't believe I just said that in church, but yes, he's likening it to human excrement. He is essentially saying that the, his former formal values, guiding life principles, and everything else amounts to waste product. Deserves nothing more than to be flushed or discarded. That's pretty intense. Especially when we consider some of the things that I just named. That's a hard teaching. Don't miss it. This actually reminds me of, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if any of you have ever worked in like a fast food restaurant or seeing what a grease trap looks like. But at the end of the day, that filter, there's nothing worth saving in that filter. That screen, all it's trapped is that leftover food debris or whatever you want to call it. Picture that in your mind in con in, as the contrast that Paul is setting up here. Everything when compared to the surpassing value of Christ, is like that leftover stuff. The graphic and vulgar connotation of this word emphasizes with deep emotion, like I was saying before, 
how Paul feels about the utter uselessness of one, the religious accolades he's accumulated, two, the false teaching that diverts attention away from Christ, and three, just to be absolutely clear, everything else as compared to knowing Jesus. Their value is equivalent to filthy, useless waste. I wonder if you put your values in such strong terms. Do you believe that knowing Christ is more valuable than anything in this world? Do you believe that everything else amounts to a pile of poop in comparison? When we value knowing Christ above everything else, it impacts the decisions we make and the way we live. It sets us on a course that we don't that the world doesn't understand, a course that cuts against the grain and is not always easy. Is it worth it? That's the question. Is it worth it? Romans 8.39 says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus we find the love of God. Jesus is our connection point with the Father. And once we are found in Him, nothing in this life can pull us apart. Nothing is greater than the love we find in Him. Nothing can step in and even come close to being found in Christ, to knowing Him. Nothing is of greater value. It's worth it knowing Christ because of His surpassing value. It's also worth it knowing Christ because of His surpassing righteousness. In the Old Testament understanding of the law, the ceremonial practices and sacrifices were done by the Jews in order to make them temporarily right before God. Or righteous. As a Pharisee before encountering Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul had a different name. Saul. Saul would have been well versed in the particulars of the law as verse 9 suggests, would have formally trusted in the law for his right standing with God and his right conduct as a Pharisee. He was sure that his self-reliant law following had made him right with God. This is part of the reason he was formally so adamant about persecuting, yes, even murdering Christians. We see an account of Saul's righteousness and conduct in Acts 9, verses 1-3. through Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Christ, to Paul, was an affront to the law and everything Saul had built his life around. In Saul's view, Christ's righteousness did not surpass his own. Did you hear that? In, Paul, in Saul's view, his own righteousness did, not sur- did surpass Christ's. Christ's righteousness did not surpass his own. But after Saul's faithful, fateful encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, a dramatic change occurs. Along with his name changing from Saul to Paul, 
we see this once self-righteous man become completely Christ-reliant and Christ-righteous. The difference between Saul and Paul is the difference between night and day. It's the difference between self-reliance and Christ-reliance. Self-righteousness and Christ-righteousness. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the law. But that's not what we have to put our hope in. That's not where we're putting our trust in. Paul is making clear by strong contrast that self-righteousness through the law is worthless when compared to Christ's righteousness through knowing Christ. The law falls markedly short and cannot do more than it was intended to do. I imagine two arrows released from a bow. The first one flies at its target, but dips and misses altogether. The second one is released, flies, and sinks deep right into its intended target. The first arrow, self-righteousness. The second arrow, Christ-righteousness. With Christ, the arrow always finds its mark because it's in him. Ultimately, the law just simply reveals our need for Christ. We have no right apart from Christ. And we can't live right apart from Christ. We have no right apart from Christ, and we can't live right apart from Christ. In all of this, the grace gift of faith is the key ingredient. When we rightly depend on and trust in Christ, we find life. When I was very much still a boy, uh, probably in sixth grade, maybe, maybe even seventh grade, I went to a summer camp in Boswell, Pennsylvania, other side of the state. And I was always excited to get there to summer camp because I would see old friends that I hadn't seen since last year, and I would get to participate in all the camp activities. I loved most of the activities. But I always began to tremble when my counselors announced that our next activity was going to be the climbing wall because I have a fear of heights. Now, this climbing wall at camp is no small McDonald's play play place type climbing wall. This is a monster. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Fenway Park Green Monster. It's about 37 feet high above the infield, and that's that's close. We're getting close to that kind of height. And I knew we would have to climb up, and I knew we would also have to repel. So I got all my gear on, I got all the safety equipment, and and, um, got my carabiners and, and ropes, climbed up all the long flight of stairs, winding all the way up to the top of the tower because it was my turn to repel. I don't know if you guys can see the edge of the stage here, but I stood facing my counselor, looking back down over the edge, thinking, how do I get out of here? How can I get out of this? And I realized the fastest way out 
is going to be down. My counselor assured me, hey, everything's in place. We checked it, double-checked it. The safety system is not going to fail. All you've got to do is take a step back and lean back. Lean back? Are you kidding me? That's the last thing I want to do. And he said, just do it. Oh, I take my feet to the very edge. Now it's just really my toes hanging on. And I, my legs are shaking like crazy. I begin to lean back. And suddenly I start feeling the tension of the rope. It is supporting my weight. Now to this point, I knew that it would support my weight. The thing is, rate, these ropes are rated for like 6,000 6, pounds of static weight. That's a, that's a car or like an elephant. Okay, so I knew in my mind it would hold me. But it took me leaning back off the edge, feeling that rope, to start having the trust that, okay, I'm not going to fall, I'm not going to die here. And that's important to remember. That's an important lesson for me to learn and that I apply to my faith. Because had I gone to the edge and been very, very, let's say, self-confident or self-reliant and said, hey, I don't need to trust anything or anyone. I don't need to trust these ropes. We'll do away with those. I would have done the exact same thing, leaned backwards, and plummeted to my death. That would have been the end. No more Kevin. But because I was reliant on the ropes, because I trusted in the ropes, I lived, and I not only lived, halfway down the wall, I started jumping. I started leaving the wall and coming, swinging and coming back in. Leaving and coming back in. I'm smiling ear to ear. So fear quickly turned into freedom. The freedom to enjoy that, that repel. But it would have been impossible to do on my own. And that's the point. We're not, we're not safe when we're trusting blindly in ourselves. We are safe when we're hooked into Jesus. He is our safety system. See, like I said, if I had just leaned back off the edge without ropes, I would have been dead. And that's where Paul was going too. He was on the fast track to earthly fame and recognition, but his trust in himself was going to be fatal. In the end, it would have amounted to nothing. We do that too, don't we? We tend to trust in ourselves instead of the ropes. Trusting in our own righteousness instead of Christ's righteousness. Think over the past week. Where have you been self-reliant when you could have been more Christ-reliant? Are you satisfied to stay where you are in your own strength? Or do you want something more? You want to start relying on Christ and His strength. 
and his righteousness. So is it worth it? Is it worth knowing Christ? It's worth knowing Christ because of his righteousness. Likewise, it's worth knowing Christ because of his surpassing life. In the second part of verse 10, Paul shares his desire to find fellowship through suffering. Look at what it says. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Now, on the surface, this is counterintuitive. Wait a second, wait a second. I thought my life was supposed to be about finding uh, safe, soft, and comfortable. I thought my life was supposed to be about the pursuit of happiness. Conform to death? But, Paul is saying that as a result of suffering, we find fellowship. Through Christ's death, we find life. This is one of the reasons, if not the reason, why Paul can write what has been called his joyful letter to the Philippians, even while suffering in prison. Think about it. The man is in prison, yet writing one of his most joy-filled letters in all of the New Testament. Although the tendency is to avoid suffering, we don't have to be surprised or discouraged when it it comes. What on the surface looks bad might actually be for our best. When we identify with Christ's cross, we enter into sweet fellowship that can be experienced no other way. We are bonded to Christ through identification with his suffering. The shared experience brings us together. It's somewhat like being part of a football team or a Navy SEALs team or the Welsh Mountain Wheelmen. That's a biking group that I started riding with just over the past few days. And their idea of fun is biking around in circles and going up the Welsh Mountain multiple times. But you know what? That experience, that shared experience of going through that pain, going through that suffering with them, has already brought us closer. When we identify with Christ, we partake in his suffering and experience a deep fellowship that ultimately leads us to life. I wonder if you've considered the cross this week. Has it ever occurred to you that running from suffering and gravitating towards soft, safe, and comfortable might be keeping you from fellowship with Christ and the true and abundant life he's offering? Going back to the first part of verse 10, we see that through the resurrection of Christ, God's great power is demonstrated. The same power is available to us right now. It's a power that we can rely on to sustain us through whatever suffering or hardship we might face. It's a power that strengthens us in this life right now and guarantees us eternal life ever after. Paul knows that Christ's death on the cross has forgiven sin once and for all. He knows that there is now no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. He knows that 
at Christ's resurrection, sin was vanquished and victory was won. He knows that when Christ ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, he sent his Holy Spirit to be with his people to empower them, to empower us. But Paul also knows the realities of life. This life is hard. It's wrought with pain and suffering. And there's still much pain and suffering ahead. And ultimately, death waits for all of us. Ironically, death and suffering in Christ brings about life and victory through resurrection power. Because we have access to his life now and for eternity. Are you identifying with Christ's suffering and power? Have you experienced the surpassing life of Christ? I admit it, I don't like to conform. Our current culture puts a premium on individuality and uniqueness. But in verse 10, we hear that Paul desires to be conformed to Christ's death, shaped by it, to be pressed into it. I think of a piece of Play-Doh being pressed through one of those Play-Doh presses, pressed through a cross-shaped plate. Now, if that Play-Doh is soft, it can go right through, and it takes the shape of whatever it's being pressed through. But Play-Doh that's become hard doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It doesn't go through. It can't take that shape. It can't be molded by that plate. Paul wants to be the soft Play-Doh conformed in every way to Christ. If he was a piece of hardened clay calloused by this life and unwilling to conform, no amount of pressing would succeed in changing his shape. I wonder today if you've been hardened by the struggles and the trials, and the scorching pain of this life. I wonder if today you would consider asking God to soften your heart. That it might be conformed to His death and raised to new life in Him. When we're conformed to Him, we're united to His life. The truth is, we become like the things that we identify with. We identify with role models. Friends, teachers, parents, leaders, and ultimately we're shaped by them. I wonder if we've made knowing Christ a priority. What would it look like in your life to identify to the extent of being conformed to Christ's death? Is it worth it? Is it worth knowing Christ because of his surpassing life? Yes, it's worth knowing Christ because of his surpassing life. Specifically in this text, Paul achieves his purpose of discussing the nature of right standing with God and the means of connecting, or correcting and persuading the Philippians away from temptation towards religious complacency, trust in the law, and the avoidance of suffering, finding safety in the law. After demonstrating the supreme value of knowing Christ, Paul urges the Philippians to join him in striving after the true and certain goal, that is, Christ himself. Paul makes clear that Christ is the goal now, Christ is the goal forever, and he is where life is found. 
Is it worth it? I hope you consider your answer seriously. Some of you already know Christ and are on a journey to know him more deeply. Be reminded of his surpassing value, righteousness, and life. Some of you don't know him, but you want to. I encourage you to take the step off the edge from self-reliance to Christ-reliance. And then tell someone about it. Some of you are not at that point where you're ready to take the step off the edge. But I pray that one day you will. And I I pray that if you're feeling that inclination this morning, that you would take the opportunity this morning and not wait. Don't take the easy way out. Don't take the stairs down off the rappelling tower. Lean back and trust in the ropes. Well, let's pray that God would help us in our pursuit to know Him. Let's pray. Lord, help us to know Your surpassing value. Help us to know Your surpassing righteousness. And help us to know Your surpassing life. Please let that intimate and personal knowledge of You be our aim and our means to live the life You intended us to live here and forever with you. In Jesus' name, amen.